If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We'll read a very familiar passage. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Well, the Lord Jesus uses the metaphor of the wind to refer to the Holy Spirit, and this suggests something invisible, something dynamic, And most importantly, something mysterious. There's something unsolvable. There's something unknowable about the Spirit of God. With God the Father, although He's invisible and unseen, He carries a title that we can understand. We understand from personal experience a a loving Father who rewards obedience and punishes disobedience, who rules his household with righteousness and perfection. We get that. With God the Son, perhaps even more easily, he became visible like us. He could be seen and heard and touched. But the Spirit of God, this is a different realm altogether in many ways, and I think we would do well to be humble in our attempts to describe him. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, he wrote a massive theological work on the Holy Spirit. He published it at the end of the 19th century. And it's this thick. It's big. His first chapter is called Careful Treatment Required. And he says of the Holy Spirit, quote, Of him nothing appears in visible form. He never steps out from the intangible void, hovering, undefined, incomprehensible. He remains a mystery. He is as the wind. We hear its sound, but cannot tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. Eye cannot see him. Ear cannot hear him, much less the hand handle him. Well, over the past weeks, we've just finished looking at the godly women of the church. And before we kind of go back and drink the refreshing waters of 1 Timothy 3 and look at the church's shepherds, I wanted to take a brief few weeks to make certain we're all on the same page regarding 
the important third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is fully God. And there's a very practical reason for this. In our church, many of you are coming from many differing theological backgrounds and even in recent months. And so I thought it would be useful for us together to kind of get us all on the same page and do a brief overview of the magnificent and mysterious Spirit of God. I think we have to start here. More than God the Father and more than God the Son, the reputation of the Spirit of God has suffered the most in the church in the past century. The most lies have been told about the Spirit. The most blasphemous actions have been directed toward the Spirit compared to God the Father and God the Son. The Holy Spirit has been wrongly credited with terrible, twisted practices in pseudo-churches which abandon the true gospel, abandon the true God of the Bible. But the Holy Spirit is the reason that the church of Jesus Christ exists. And this year, in our year of the church, the pillar and foundation of the truth, I think it's appropriate that we pause briefly to acknowledge the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So what I'd like to do is just establish kind of a baseline, a basic understanding of the Holy Spirit and His ministry over the course of just three messages is all. Now, for some of you, maybe this will be no new information whatsoever, but I would say this, that the value to you is that reviewing the glorious attributes and aspects of God is always valuable. It is in and of itself an act of worship and praise to review who God is. But for others of you, this might be all new information. Some of you will nod in agreement because you've heard this before. Others will be walking out with hand cramps because you've never heard any of this. And so that'll put us all on the same page together. But this will establish a baseline and give future members a, maybe a short series they can listen to to shore up their theology as well. So I thought long and hard and prayed about how to organize. How do you speak of the Holy Spirit in just three messages? I started with 15, pared it down to five, thought we'd do three because we have to get through First Timothy eventually. So um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the Holy Spirit in the past. We'll look at the Holy Spirit in the present. And we'll look at the Holy Spirit in the future. How's that sound? That'll be as, as easy as we can make it, I think. Now, we'll just be touching lightly on a lot of different places in Scripture. So the next three weeks will be a little bit more topical, kind of more of a Bible study in many ways, just to get some baseline information to us. So today I'd like to look at the Holy Spirit in the past. Now, just to give us some pegs to hang our thoughts on, I want to just ask five questions. And the first question is where we have to start with any discussion of the Holy Spirit. And the first question is, is the Holy Spirit God? Is the Holy Spirit God? And this is not strictly, of course, speaking of the Holy Spirit in the past, but we have to start here just to make certain that we're reminded the, the Holy Spirit is not merely some inanimate power of God or a behind-the-scenes lesser figure than being fully God. The Holy Spirit is not God the Father, the Holy Spirit is not God the Son, and yet the Holy Spirit is fully the one God. The Holy Spirit is not one-third of God. He's all that God is in every characteristic and attribute. In Acts chapter 5, when Peter condemns Ananias for lying to the Holy Spirit in verse 3, he clarifies in verse 5 that Ananias lied to God. And since only God is holy, then only God may be blasphemed. And in Matthew 12, Jesus condemns the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In Psalm 139, verse 7, 
The psalmist says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? In other words, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He's everywhere present. That is an attribute of only God alone. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. In other words, the Spirit knows everything God knows, making Him all-knowing. He's omniscient. And those are just, just a couple of examples. Very few of the countless examples in Scripture that the Holy Spirit is never in the Bible seen as an impersonal force or power. He is God, very God. He is personal. He is a person. I'm always disappointed when I hear Christians refer to the Holy Spirit as it. Would you like to be referred to as it? This is my husband. Its name is John. No, the Holy Spirit, he is God. And by the way, if the Spirit is not fully God, the implications for our salvation are extremely serious. If the Holy Spirit is a lesser God or not truly God in any sense, how can we be certain of regeneration? Regeneration is by the Holy Spirit. What does the indwelling of the Spirit actually mean if He is not fully God? Who is indwelling me if it's not God? And if we're sealed in our salvation by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1 says, then how effective is that sealing if he's less than God? I would have less confidence in my salvation if there is some in-between being who's not God, who's not a man, that is somehow responsible to keep my salvation. So our salvation depends on the answer, yes, the Holy Spirit is God. There's a second question. Were believers in God in the Old Testament regenerated by the Holy Spirit? Now we are going to the past. Were believers in God in the Old Testament regenerated by the Holy Spirit? And sometimes when you ask a hard question, it's easier to start in more familiar territory. So in the New Testament, the doctrine of regeneration is very clear to us that the Holy Spirit changes from the inside out the heart of a person, enabling them to come to saving faith in Christ. It is regeneration. It is that change that enables faith. Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of, what? Regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Paul describes this new creation in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is what Jesus calls being born again. And we've already seen from John 3 that this is solely the work of the Spirit at His discretion in His timing. In fact, when it says that you must be born again, this is not, when Jesus said that, that's not an active verb, meaning it's something you need to go do. It's something that happens to you. We've already seen that the New Testament doctrine of regeneration is clear. But then we go to the Old Testament and it begins to get a little fuzzy for us, doesn't it? What about the Old Testament saints? Were they saved in the sense that we think of salvation from sin? Now, I don't want to dive into a lot of detail, but this is where we get into the theological idea of continuity and discontinuity, of similarity and dissimilarity between the members of the Old Covenant community, that is Israel, and the members of the New Covenant community, in the church, old classic dispensationalism would say that there is virtually no continuity, no similarity, and we would disagree with that. And broadly speaking, covenant theology would say there's virtually no discontinuity. And in fact, uh, even calling the people of the Old Testament the church, 
and the people of the New Testament uh, knew Israel. There's lots of variations to that, but we would disagree with that as well. The most plausible ground to land on is to understand that there are many things that are the same and many things that are different. Continuity, discontinuity between the Old Testament saint and the New Testament saint. And one of the aspects of salvation that is either the same or very, very similar, that there's continuity, is the fact that Old Testament saints were regenerated in some fashion similar or identical to New Testament saints. In the Old Testament, those who are regenerate are set apart from their unbelieving countrymen and they're called righteous, they're called blameless. Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, is this just me making a theological decision? No. There's evidence that the Holy Spirit regenerated to some degree or level the true believers of the Old Testament. Let me give you three pieces of evidence. First of all, the New Testament calls Old Testament believers saved. He calls them saved. Now, we think of that as very much a New Testament term. But in Romans 4, Paul says that Abraham was justified by faith. He's saved. Hebrews 4 gives Old Testament examples of people saved by faith. Why is that important? Because saving faith is the result of what? Regeneration. Just last week on Sunday evening, we saw that in the law of God, in the Old Testament, God calls for circumcision of the heart, an internal transforming reality of faith that must be the work of the Spirit. So the New Testament calls Old Testament believers saved. There's a second piece of evidence. God defines true believers as those with a heart for Him. God defines true believers as those with a heart for Him. In Isaiah 1, God condemns the faithless in Israel who offer sacrifices, who keep festivals, but have no true heart for Him. And He's, he's extremely condemning of this. And in fact, He follows up this condemnation with a call to true salvation. You've heard this call. Isaiah 1.18 Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Remember, Romans 3 tells us, and this is a universal truth, it's always been true, that no one seeks after God. It must be a work of God to recreate the heart into a true seeker of God and to a true believer. There's a third evidence that Old Testament believers were regenerate. True Old Testament believers saw their relationship with God as an issue of the heart. True Old Testament believers saw their relationship with God as an issue of the heart. King David cried out in repentance in Psalm 51 verse 10, Create in me a clean what? Heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, we want to be clear. We want to be as precise as we can. The new covenant comes with many great promises of a new heart, a heart of flesh that's not of stone, but this doesn't negate the reality of some sort of regeneration in the Old Testament. So those are three pieces of evidence that the Old Testament saints were regenerate. But let me give you one more. If you don't believe those three, how about you believe the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Here's a fourth reason. Jesus expected understanding of regeneration. He expected understanding of regeneration. Back in John chapter 3, let's continue the story. John chapter 3, verse 9. Remember, what has Jesus just said? Everyone who is born of the Spirit, it's like the wind. You must be born again. Now, 
would you guess that in verse 9, Nicodemus is going to say, wow, this is fabulous new information. We've never heard this before. No. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Now, that sounds like, oh, new information. Look what Jesus says. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? From his understanding of the Old Testament, Jesus expected that Nicodemus would understand the concept of being born again, of being regenerate. Now, there isn't a word for regeneration in the Old Testament, but God's call for circumcised hearts, an inward sign of true belief, not just an outward sign, it's the same exact concept. So Jesus rebukes him. He says, are you the teacher of Israel? Meaning the premier teacher. Are you the the top guy who teaches the Bible and you don't understand being born again? You don't understand regeneration? How can this be? And so were Old Testament believers regenerate? Jesus thought so. And he expected that the teachers of Israel would understand this. Now, we do want to be clear. We want to be as precise as we can. Regeneration by the Spirit is not the same as the permanent indwelling of the Spirit. That's a clear discontinuity that's reserved for the era of the new covenant. That is a brand new thing. Jesus said in John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, speaking of his ascension into heaven, for if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In other words, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit would happen after Christ ascended into heaven. If somebody ever asks you, what makes the church of Jesus Christ so special? It is the first people of God in history to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That happens for the first time on the day of Pentecost. Now, you might be saying, well, why is this important for me? Why do I care whether David was regenerate why do i care whether moses and aaron were regenerate or abraham or isaac or jacob or daniel or ezekiel or isaiah or jeremiah why would i care i think most christians read their old testament with this air of weirdness and mystery like they don't really know what's going on but do you understand that if old testament saints are regenerate that opens for us the joys and delights of knowing that all of the saints of the old testament are examples for us that we relate to them, that just as they struggled with certain things, we struggle with certain things, just as they desire to obey God out of love, so we desire to obey out of love, that we have fellowship in our common faith. I think sometimes we forget that we're going to meet these people. Are you going to be the one to go up to David and say, well, I had the Holy Spirit and you didn't? He's going to say, I beg to differ. I was called a man after God's own heart. I prayed, created me a clean what? Heart? Oh yes, I heard that on Sunday once. This means that all the spiritual lessons from David and the Psalms, from the life of Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob and Genesis, from the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, they're all teachers for us. Not just of some obscure Old Testament things that we don't understand, but they are examples of how to walk by the Spirit as regenerate believers in God. There's a third question. Really going back to the beginning, how was the Holy Spirit involved in creation? How was the Holy Spirit involved in creation? We just sang a hymn with a beautiful verse about the Holy Spirit's involvement in creation. I was happy to see that. And we have to lay a little foundation here. In the Old Testament, frequently the Spirit of God is given the specific designation Ruach 
kodesh, meaning the spirit who is holy. But very often, ruach is used by itself because it's a word that just means wind or breath or spirit. And so if the designation of holy isn't present, then we have to use the context to understand whether ruach speaks of the spirit of God or simply the wind or the breath, which is, by the way, exactly why Jesus used this illustration with Nicodemus. The spirit of God, the ruach, is like the ruach. And interestingly, in Greek, wind and spirit are also the same word in that language. And so, of course, that makes sense. Now, given this information, some English translations render Genesis 1, 1 and 2 a little bit differently than you might be used to. The New Revised Standard Version says, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. We're not used to that, are we? The English Standard Version, though, takes Ruach as the Holy Spirit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So which one is it? Well, we should heavily favor the Spirit of God for a couple of reasons. First of all, the translations that say wind... It says the wind from God swept over the face of the waters. But that's making the picture fit the wind. That's not what the Hebrew says. It doesn't say that that swept over the Spirit of God. It, the wind swept over. It says the Spirit of God hovered or fluttered. It's a much better translation. The wind does no such thing. Wind doesn't flutter. You don't walk outside and say, I felt the wind fluttering in my face. And so it fits better. And second reason, the word for fluttering or hovering is only used one other time in all of the Torah, all of the Pentateuch. And it's right near the end, ironically. Deuteronomy 32, 11 and 12. As an eagle stirs up its nest and hovers, flutters, same Hebrew word, over its young, as it spreads its wings, takes them up and bears them aloft on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. What is this speaking of? Genesis 1 speaks of the work of the Spirit of God in creating the world. Deuteronomy 32, 11 and 12 speaks of the Spirit of God's work in the creation of Israel. Empowering, giving life. In both instances of hovering, it is an act of creation by God. So what is this hovering, this this fluttering? It's the idea, it's it's like like a hummingbird. What is this? The Spirit of God, which is the breath of God, so to speak. Well, many feel that this is the energizing of creation, the imparting of all energy. Energy is expressed, we know this from physics, in waves. And there must be a cause of of energy waves, and the Holy Spirit is the cause of all energy, the vibrations and waves that are part and parcel of our understanding of energy. And that's somewhat uh, speculative, but it makes sense. Probably a little bit more directly scriptural would be the idea, though, of giving life. Elihu said in Job 33, verse 4, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And of course, you're familiar with Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, which, a little side note of soteriology, makes total sense when we understand that it is by the Spirit of God that new life, salvation life, is breathed into us. 
Now, I want to cheat just a little bit and edge into the topic of the Spirit's work in the present, but it's related to the creation because the Spirit of God is also credited not just with forming life, giving life, but credited with maintaining life, maintaining the living creation. So turn with me to Psalm 104. And in Psalm 104, we get just a, a marvelous understanding of one of the reasons that we worship God. The purpose of Psalm 104 is to engender great worship of God, to exclaim the greatness of God, to extol His power and His might. It is to drive us to look upward to our glorious God. Look how it starts. Psalm 104, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. And look how it ends. The very end of verse 35. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. That's the purpose of the psalm. It is to drive us to praise him, to engender worship. And how does the psalm do that? Well, it begins with creation. Second half of verse one. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Verse 5, the earth is set on its foundation. Verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, the separation of the waters from the land at creation. Verses 10 through 13, God creates the watering system of the earth. Verse 13 says, from your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Verses 14 through 18 describes the care of God for the earth. Verse 14, the grass and the crops. Verse 15, the vineyards and the grain. Verse 16, the orchards and the forests. And 17 and 18, the care of the animal world. And it's still on this theme of creation. Verses 19 through 23 speaks of the glory of the moon to mark the seasons, the sun and the daytime and nighttime to punctuate and mark our days on the earth. Verses 24 through 26, the great creatures of the oceans. And all of these, the land animals, the birds, the sea creatures, they all depend on the Spirit of God for life. Look at verse 27. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. And this acknowledgement of the spirit of God who gives life, who takes away life, this is to engender awe and worship. Verse 33 I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. And conversely, for all who would refuse to worship the God of creation and the God who sustains His creation. Verse 35, Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. The giving of energy, the giving of life, was the role of the Holy Spirit at creation and keeping life. The keeping of life is the role of the Holy Spirit currently. And when anyone devalues the work of God in giving life, devalues the work of God in creating us, then you're directly devaluing the Holy Spirit. Technically speaking, the famous unforgivable sin 
of blaspheming the Holy Spirit can't be committed today. Jesus condemned for all eternity the leaders of Israel who accused him of doing miracles by the power of Satan. Mark chapter 3, that's not happening today. Jesus isn't here for that to happen. But the Holy Spirit can certainly be blasphemed whenever mankind gives credit for life to chance, to a big bang, or to an amoeba crawling out of a random sludge to become your great-grandmother. It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He is the giver of life. Evolution is blasphemy. Theistic evolution is blasphemy. The Holy Spirit gave life. Here's a fourth question. How is the Holy Spirit involved with Israel? We're still again in the past. Now, very quickly after the creation, the focus of God's plan now goes to redemption, almost immediately to restoring what was lost because of the entrance of sin into the world. What are our four favorite chapters in the Bible? The first two and the last two, because they're the only four chapters in the Bible without sin in them. And so very quickly, the plan of God of redemption becomes the forefront. Now, we learned in our study of the Pentateuch that God initiates his plan to bring a savior. He promised this all the way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And through this Savior, the Savior will come rather through a nation, a chosen nation, which will be formed by God miraculously through one old man named Abram, Abraham. God will form the nation of Israel by bringing the 70 members of Abraham's grandson, Jacob, his family to Egypt. And in the crucible, in the fires of slavery, the family will become a mighty nation which would be redeemed rescued by God and brought to the promised land of Canaan. So what role did the Holy Spirit play in Israel? The centerpiece of God's redemptive plan in the Old Testament. Well, I want to divide this into four different roles that the Holy Spirit plays because he's everywhere. The first role the Holy Spirit plays we'll call tender care for Israel. His tender care for Israel. In Isaiah 63, Isaiah is bemoaning how Israel rebelled against God. And he says in verse 10 that they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Sounds familiar from our reading of Ephesians 4, doesn't it? How could Israel grieve the Holy Spirit? Because Isaiah 63, 11 says, God put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit. This is speaking of the time of the Exodus, by the way. And by rescuing Israel from slavery, Isaiah 63, 14 says that the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. It is the Spirit that gives rest. In Nehemiah, the Levites blessed God for his tender care for Israel during their wandering in the wilderness. Nehemiah 9, verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. So the Spirit of God gave tender care, or we might call this help to Israel. And now, as a New Testament believer, you're you're not surprised by this. What does Jesus call the Holy Spirit? He told his disciples at the Last Supper in John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another, what? Helper. To be with you, even the Spirit of truth. Tender care for Israel. The Spirit plays a second role. We'll call this one ruling wisdom for Israel. Ruling wisdom for Israel. Numbers chapter 11 records that Moses was worn out with the griping and the complaining and the disputes between God's people. So the Lord told him to appoint 70 elders to help him. 
And Numbers eleven seventeen says, I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. This wasn't the permanent indwelling of the new covenant, but a special divine enablement for a specific task. Later in Israel's history, the Holy Spirit is seen even more prominently in leading the rescuers, the deliverers of Israel during the time of the judges. In judges 3.10, the Spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel and he judged Israel. Judges 6.34, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. Judges 11.29, and the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Judges 14.6, then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. You can learn much about the Spirit's ruling wisdom in the book of Judges. The first Samuel 10 records the Spirit of God coming upon Saul, the first king of Israel, in order to deliver Israel from surrounding enemies. Now, you may be going, oh, wait a minute. Uh, Saul ultimately rebelled against God. How could he have the Spirit? Well, we have to keep in mind that, again, the Spirit's help was a special enabling, not a permanent salvation indwelling. On numerous occasions, the Spirit of God is said to rest on King David, called a man after God's own heart. I want to spend just a moment on David. In in David's enabling by the Holy Spirit, just a little side note here, we get a pattern and a shadow of what leadership looks like by a Spirit-led Messiah. Think about this. David was chosen by God, 1 Samuel 16, verse 12 And he sent and brought him in. This is David. Now David was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. He's a messianic-like figure chosen by God. He's confirmed as chosen by the Spirit. The very next verse, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. He acts to deliver his people. Like a Messiah would. As a young man, he faces the mighty Goliath on Israel's behalf in 1 Samuel 17. And empowered by the Spirit of God, he defeats this giant soldier. And of course, it's through David that God would eventually give rest from Israel's enemies. 2 Samuel 7, 1. So we see very clearly that the Messianic king is chosen by God, confirmed as chosen by the Spirit. He acts to deliver his people and he gives his people rest. Just what Christ does. In fact, when David sinned against Bathsheba, sinned with Bathsheba rather, he repented and he begged God. In Psalm 51, 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This wasn't an issue of personal salvation. The issue was the possible loss of his kingship, of his spirit-enabled power to rule God's people, which must be by the Spirit. And so in the life of Israel, The Spirit gave ruling wisdom. And again, this is familiar to us. Jesus promised the disciples in John 14, 26 that when he went to heaven, the Father would send the Holy Spirit in the name of Christ and quote, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In the church of Jesus Christ, uh, leaders in the church have a qualification. Acts chapter six says they are to be full of the Holy Spirit to lead And so the Spirit played the role of tender care for Israel, ruling wisdom for Israel. He plays a third role. We'll call this one communication with Israel. Communication with Israel. Beginning with Moses, 
All through the Old Testament, God spoke to his people by means of spirit-enabled prophets. God guided kings and the people by telling them how to act in specific circumstances. He warned them if they disobeyed. He predicted future events. He explained those events when they were happening. And many of these prophets wrote their inspired words from God. Micah 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. And Micah explains this divine enablement in chapter 3, verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. God commanded Ezekiel, the prophet, to speak to Israel on his behalf. He said in Ezekiel 11, beginning in verse 4, Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, O son of man. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me. And he said to me, Say, thus says the Lord, So you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. The Spirit of God claiming authority, by the way, and claiming to be all-knowing. So now we have a direct connection between the Spirit of God and the Word of God communicating with His people. And once again, this isn't new information to us as New Covenant believers in Christ. In fact, turn with me back to the New Testament, to 1 Peter chapter 1. The prophets received the Word of God not only for Israel, 1 Peter 1, but they received the Word of God on your behalf. The Spirit was giving them the foundation for our faith, which is the Old Testament, or maybe better called the First Testament. And it was for your behalf, for your, on your behalf, for your good. First Peter 1, beginning in verse 10. We'll just make a couple of quick observations. First Peter 1, beginning in verse 10. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I know we could spend hours on this. Let me just make a couple of observations. First of all, the Spirit of God is equated with the Spirit of Christ. This is very Trinitarian. and helps us understand the unity, the oneness of God. And when Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, how is that possible? Because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, dwells within you. The Spirit of God The Spirit of Christ predicted in the Old Testament the coming and the suffering and the resurrection and glorification of Christ. One more observation. How are you able to understand these things written by the prophets? According to this text, by the preaching of the gospel empowered by the Holy Spirit who is now in the church age sent from heaven. Why did you understand the gospel? Because of the Holy Spirit. Why did you claim to come to Christ? Because of the Holy Spirit. Why did you grab a hold of repentance and and forgiveness that was yours? Because of the Holy Spirit. Why do you now follow Christ? Because of the Holy Spirit. This is what enables your understanding of God's communication. 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 13, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. 
This is why a non-Christian with an IQ of 200 can read the Bible and be utterly unmoved. And why somebody who can barely remember to breathe and yet the Holy Spirit has indwelt him and he reads the word of God and he is alive in his spirit because God communicates through his spirit. The spirit of God communicated with Israel through the spoken prophecies. He's communicated with us through the written prophecies of God. One more role, tender care, ruling wisdom, communication with Israel, the presence of God with Israel. It's the Spirit's fourth role, the presence of God with Israel. Now for us as Christians in the church age, the Spirit of God is really our greatest direct understanding of God's presence with His people. The Spirit of God is the one who has indwelt us. And while the Old Testament saint didn't enjoy the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as this happened at Pentecost, the Spirit of God was involved in establishing the presence of God with His people, Israel. And this fits perfectly with the overall redemptive plan of God. In the Garden of Eden, before sin, God directly communed with and fellowshiped with Adam and Eve. And after their sin, though, Adam and Eve could only enjoy a distant relationship through mediation. God mediated through a sacrifice for sin. But the goal of redemptive history is to restore that perfect and direct communion with God for a remnant of humanity to be the direct recipients of being in the presence of God. And Israel was a step in that direction through the establishment of tabernacle worship, the temporary worship place of God's people, and the establishment of temple worship, the permanent stone structure to replace the tabernacle. And the Spirit of God was involved in this beginning of the presence of God dwelling with his people. In fact, God chose a man named Bezalel, Exodus 31, to head up the crafting and construction of all the ornate components of the tabernacle. Exodus 31 says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. Now, I love this because I like to do stuff with wood. And sometimes when I don't know what to do, I, I just say, God, I need the same spirit that Bezalel has. And God says, you don't need that because you're not crafting the place where I'm going to dwell with men. You're making a bookshelf. I don't get the spirit of God for a bookshelf, but Bezalel got the spirit of God to craft the place that God would meet with men. First Chronicles 28, beginning in verse 10, records King David giving his son Solomon all the plans for the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 12 in the English Standard Version says, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord. Uh, For some reason though, the ESV chose not to translate the word ruach that's present in Hebrew. It should be the plan of all that the Spirit had put into his mind for the courts of the house of the Lord. Fast forward many hundreds of years After the temple of Solomon has been destroyed, God's people exiled for her unfaithfulness, but when the remnant returns, God commands that the temple be rebuilt. Why? To reestablish the meeting place with God. When the people returned, Haggai 1 verse 9 records that the house of the Lord was in ruins. 
Ezekiel 10 says that the glory of the Lord had long since departed, but the returned exiles were commissioned to rebuild the temple. One small problem. Haggai 1 records that they got distracted. Why? Because they were building their own houses. Haggai 2, God calls the people to be strong, and he says, get back to building the temple. And he says in verse 4, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, here's the key. What was God's proof that he is with them? Haggai 2, verse 5, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. In fact, the leader of the temple building effort was Zerubbabel. But he was facing all kinds of opposition. He was facing opposition from the inside, the reluctance of his own people. He couldn't get people to work on the temple. And he was facing opposition from the outside, these neighboring peoples who were trying to come against them. But God told Zerubbabel to not lose heart. And why was Zerubbabel to be encouraged when he felt like he had no might, when he felt like he had no power of his own to rebuild the temple Zechariah 4, verse 6, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Will my dwelling place with God's people be established? It is the work of the Spirit. He is at the center of establishing the presence of God with his people. And again, this is not a surprise to us. Jesus said in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And he's speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it's through the coming indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the church age that Jesus could easily promise, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's through the Holy Spirit that we're said many, many times in the New Testament to be in Christ, united with Christ. Speaking of the presence of God with men, it was the Holy Spirit then who came upon the Virgin Mary to conceive God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus was baptized, inaugurating his ministry, the Holy Spirit appeared as a dove, descending upon him in confirmation of God the Father's approval of his beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. And Jesus promised his disciples that after his death and resurrection, he would go away to the Father and the Holy Spirit would come to the new covenant community that would become known as the church. And so one more question about the Holy Spirit in the past. What was the role of the Holy Spirit in the transitional early church? What was the role of the Holy Spirit in the transitional early church? The book of Acts records the coming of the promised Holy Spirit. And this marked the beginning of the church age of a people indwelt by the Holy Spirit for the first time. But this was a key transitional time, transitioning from the old covenant to the new covenant. And a key component of this transition was convincing saved Jews that Gentiles were saved by the same spirit, by the same gospel, and in equal stature to the Jews. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14.22, for example, that the spiritual gift, the gift of the Spirit of speaking in tongues, was a sign to the unbeliever that God was truly working a work of salvation from sin. In Acts chapter 10, Peter was called to go and proclaim the gospel to a Gentile family, and while he's still speaking, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles. They began speaking in tongues, glossolalia, the human languages that are not able to be known without learning. What did Peter conclude as a result of seeing them speak in tongues? 
Acts eleven eighteen. when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, these are all the Jewish church leaders saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. In other words, during this transitional time, there was a great work to be done to, trans- to prove to all the saved Jews that Gentiles were equal in spiritual stature to them. And so one of the ways that this proof was given was through the giving of miraculous spiritual manifestation gifts that proved the coming of the Spirit had come to indwell all true believers. These, these would include things like being able to, again, proclaim the gospel in a human language you had never learned, the gift of tongues. It would include being able to understand this and tell others what was being said. That was the gift of interpretation of tongues. It included being able to receive a special word from God, which was to edify the church in a day before we had what? Before we had a finished Bible, a New Testament. And it included the gift of healing, being able to heal the sick miraculously. In the book of Acts, we see examples of all of those gifts, and they're primarily for the purpose of proving the supernatural nature of the new church of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 3, says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Well, I guess the big question that we continue to deal with is, what about speaking in tongues? Is that for today? 1 Corinthians 13.8 indicates that miraculous gifts such as prophecy, special knowledge from God, and speaking in tongues were designed to expire. They were designed to cease. We no longer need them because we have a completed Bible which is the full revelation of God. But of course, the, we have the so-called charismatic revival which began in 1901 when Agnes Osman supposedly spoke in tongues. Does this accurately represent the biblical gift of tongues? Well, out of that became known as the uh, Pentecostal movement, the roots of which are still alive in the Pentecostal church today. And originally, the Pentecostal movement believed that they were doing exactly what happened in Acts 2, speaking a known human language, such as the languages listed in Acts chapter 2. They were accurate in that respect, that the gift of tongues is human languages. And in fact, they also took the same purpose as the original gift of tongues, and that was to spread the gospel of Christ. So what did the Pentecostal church do in the very, very early days of the 20th century? They did some basic missionary training, And this time, instead of doing what missionaries had been doing for a century and a half before, taking language training first, they said, we have the gift of tongues. We do not need language training. So they got on boats and went all over the world to spread the gospel. They didn't need language training because they could speak in tongues. One small problem. All these precious missionary families going all over the world would go to these remote places and it didn't work. Because nobody could understand a word they were saying. They were speaking gibberish. And so they tucked tail and went home. Rather than say we were wrong, now the Pentecostal church redefined the gift of tongues as a heavenly prayer language. Well, only God can understand it. That was the new position. So in other words, it's okay that it's just gibberish. 
The supposed tongue speaking exploded in the 1960s all the way to the present day to a massive well over 500 million strong in the charismatic movement. Once again, the so-called tongues of today don't remotely resemble what happened in the New Testament church. A number of years ago, there was a linguistics professor named William Samarin. And he took a recorder and he visited charismatic churches all over the world over a long period of time. And he recorded all of the tongue speaking happening in different churches. And in all of those recordings, he couldn't find a single example of anything remotely resembling a language. It was always the same. Repeated syllables in a rhythmic pattern, no qualities of an actual language of any kind. The modern expression of tongues are a deception and they're extremely dangerous because they give the appearance of feeling close to God and they make you feel good. It like something is happening. What about the history of tongues throughout the church? One historian noted very accurately, quote, In the long history of the church after the days of the apostles, the phenomenon of tongues has been looked upon as heresy. It has never been accepted by the historical churches of Christendom. It has been universally repudiated by these churches as a doctrinal and emotional aberration. Why was this happening in the book of Acts then? Because there was a lot of work to do. When you're going from an old covenant to a new covenant, there's a bridge to be crossed. And the gift of tongues provided that. By the way, it was a very, very practical gift. Do you know what the apostles were able to do? Remember, the apostles were generally uneducated men. You know what they were able to do in one day? They were able to proclaim the gospel to thousands of people in 15 different languages. Can I put it this way? The gift of tongues was the internet of the day. It spread the gospel instantly. And by the way, what language did everybody in the known world read? They read Greek. And so you have the spoken word of God in every language imaginable. The Apostle Paul said he spoke in tongues more than anyone. Why? Because he went to more cities than anyone. He didn't have time to knock on the door and say, excuse me, can somebody interpret for me? He just started speaking. How glorious is that? What a great, great work. The role of the Holy Spirit in the transitional early church was to make the transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. Have we made the transition? Absolutely. We have a completed Bible. It begins in the beginning and ends at the end with everything that the Holy Spirit would have us to know. That is the work of the Spirit in the past. If you would allow me just one more moment. There is a glorious work that the Spirit does in the present. And Jesus said that this would happen when the Spirit comes. He said in John 16, And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. And I have to say this, if you're sensing that you're lost, if you're sensing that you're out of fellowship with God because of your own sin, you know what that is? That is the Spirit of God convicting you. That is the Spirit of God speaking to your heart that you've fallen short of the righteousness of God, that you've not believed truly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might say, why do you say this to people inside a church building? Because it is people who have been inside a church building that Jesus will address in Matthew 7, who they say to Him, Lord, Lord, did we not do these mighty works in Your name, i.e. in the church? And He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. The Spirit of God never came upon them. They just sat inside walls. 
And so it is the Spirit of God giving the opportunity to come to Christ, to repent and denounce your own sin, and to acknowledge your desperate need for a Savior who would transfer you from the kingdom of darkness up to the kingdom of light. Because I have to be very, very, very clear about this. Even unbelievers are interested in the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts says that. But the Holy Spirit and the presence of God through the Spirit is only for those who have trusted Christ. Without the Holy Spirit, you will continue as a slave to your own pride, to your own sin, to your own selfishness. You might even get away with playing church for a while, but ultimately the one who knows all things will expose you, whether in this life or in the judgment seat in the life to come. And so if there is something inside of you saying, I might not be right with God, that is the Spirit of God speaking to your heart right now. And so respond to that urging. And what will happen? Remember how we said the Spirit was intimately involved with creation? Well, He is the instrument of your recreation. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The work of the Spirit in the present is to point you to the cross and to get you there, to get you to Christ. And I pray that He does this day. Let's pray for a moment and then we'll receive the Lord's table together. Our Father, we come now thanking you and praising you because for everyone who knows Christ, there was a moment in time when at your behest, according to your will, according to the counsel of your own will, before the foundation of the earth, you planned that there would be a moment in time when the Spirit of God would blow And our spiritual eyes would be opened, our spiritual ears unstopped, our spiritual hearts melted, that we might see and hear and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so while the Spirit's work is so very important, we also know from Scripture it is the Spirit's will that we look to our Savior, our King, our Lord, our Sovereign, who is the Lord Jesus. As we come to the Lord's table now, Father, I pray that we come with humble hearts, with those who seek to remember and honor the Son of God, the one to whom the Spirit would point us. We pray in His name. Amen.